Okay. Um, if you did not get an email from me this week, it means you're not on our distribution list, which is fine. You may get all the emails you want to get and don't want to be on that. If you want to be that on that, if you'll maybe at the end of class come up and give us your email address. We'll add that. Come on, I don't bite. We're fine. Um, I know that you've seen this three weeks in a row, but frankly, the composition of our class seems to change a good bit from week to week, and this is such a kind of basic element of what we're talking about. I want to look at it again. These are four different kinds of parenting styles. Um, control being a variable and responsiveness. Other words for responsiveness might be warmth, engagement with your child. Another word for control might be how much, how demanding you are. Now, um, I'm not going to deal with this one, I don't think. Anybody that got themselves up and got their children to Sunday school on a rainy day is not neglectful, so we're not going to deal with that one, okay? Um, this is authoritarian. This is very high on control. You do it because I say do it. There's not nearly as much warmth or empathy there. That doesn't mean this parent doesn't love the child. Okay, let, let, let's, I, I, I want to be careful that we don't paint any of this with too broad a brush, but they don't exhibit a lot of empathy or warmth toward that child. And do not confuse warmth with affection, okay? My husband was highly engaged with our children, but my husband doesn't hug anybody but me. Now, he really does. And in fact, Amy talks about coming home from college and greeting him at the door, and there's almost an awkwardness that, you know, he doesn't hug. Well, you don't shake hands with your father. and and But... But again, um, we're talking not about affection because this might be a very affectionate personality, but they're still not the same kind of empathy. Am I making any sense here? Okay. The research, and I think it's consistent with biblical teaching, is that this is where we want to be. We want to be high in our control or demanding, but we also want to be high in our empathy or responsiveness or engagement with the child. That ends up with children that are more self-reliant, they're more confident, they're more responsible. This child is less trusting and interestingly, less self-reliant because they haven't made any of the decisions. They haven't been a part of making the decisions. They haven't been taught to make the decisions. Dad has said, this is the way you do it because I say so, okay? Now, I suspect, but I don't know, that we are not as inclined to be there as we are here, okay? And indulgent, I'm very engaged with the child. But it's so hard. They're so sweet and I don't want them to be unhappy and I don't want them to be mad at me and I don't want them to go to therapy because I was too controlling and so I tend to have less self-control. And the child, does not have boundaries. They are less reliant, they're less controlled, they're less confident, they manage their money more poorly, this one's more likely, these two are more likely to be incarcerated. I mean, they're really fascinating um, long-term, longitudinal. uh, Okay, let's play with this. Hey, there's a couple up here and a couple here. Don't stand, okay, okay. because I want to be sure you get this. And none of us are any one of these. I want to be there, but sometimes I'm there, and I'm sometimes here. And if I'm really honest, occasionally I'm even right here. Not very often. but um, 
let's take this. You've got a 10-year-old who has an iPad, and the rules are that iPads do not go in your bedroom at night. And you've tucked that 10-year-old in, and you go check a little bit later, and under the covers you see a suspicious light, and the iPad has somehow found its way into the bedroom, and while they're supposed to be going to sleep, because tomorrow is a school day, they are playing on their iPad. So what does the authoritarian parent do? Rip it out. Yeah, rip it out. We're done. This goes in timeout for the next six months. That's an exaggeration, but it, it's... What does the... We're not going to do with this one. This one didn't even check to see what was happening. Um, I'm really not kidding about that in the sense I... I am so inspired by talking to you all because you care so much. You are so intentional. Um, there's a whole lot of children in the world that don't have that. And you're not perfect. But I hope you are thanking God for the care and concern and intentionality with which you're parenting. Okay, so what does the indulgent parent do? What does the indulgent parent say? Just finish the show. <laughs> you know, you know. I, I bet you forgot, and, and I bet you won't do this anymore. And so I'm going to put this up. I want you to remember next time, okay? And what does the authoritative parent do? We don't know. That's why we're here. <laughs> I love it. Okay, I think they almost do the same thing as the authoritarian. They're going to say, oh, I am so sorry, but you know, this is not what our rule is. You really wanted to play a little bit more. You didn't get to play very much this afternoon, did you? But we can't break the rules. And so I need the iPad. And I'm going to need to help you remember next time. So the iPad is going to go in timeout all day tomorrow. Okay? <coughs> You're understanding what the child feels. You're not saying you're a bad person because you sneaked in there with that iPad. I bet you're going to sneak around the rest of your life. None of that, okay? But you are going to demand that what you have decided are good and reasonable rules and behaviors will be enforced, okay? Okay? Are we kind of on the same page? Okay. minutes on analyzing our parenting. We've talked about four different things. We've talked about that we don't stay in any one of those quadrants all the time. And the reality of it is both parents are not necessarily in the same quadrants all of the time, okay? In most families, there's one that's a little more indulgent and maybe a little bit more authoritarian, okay? Now, we get into problems if we have a very indulgent parent and a very authoritarian parent, what happens? 
Yes, and every bright child is going to do that. And there's not anything wrong with that. My children know if it came to spending money, they came to me, okay? <laughs> if it came to sitting up later, they went to their father. I mean, that's just what they figured out. That's not, they're not bad. They were just smart, okay? <laughs> but if you've got... How does that indulgent parent feel when he sees mom being what he thinks is too tough, too harsh? Yes, yes. So we tend to become more extremes there. And that's not the healthiest because then we kind of become a good guy and a bad guy and most of us don't like those labels but we tend to, to fall into that. So to the extent that you all can talk about things and kind of find some common ground, um, that you can at least feel good about where you are. Now, I want to go and look at a few other... Um, oh, here we go. A few other parenting styles. And, and this is where... I know you never have a moment to yourself. So I really hate to ask you to think about something during the few moments you have to yourself. But I really, and maybe if it's even a conversation, maybe you can go out to dinner with your spouse and you can, in a calm environment, talk about it a little bit. But think about what are some personality factors that tend to influence your parenting. If you are a type A, intense, aggressive personality, what what risk is there? Yes, you may be too intense with your kids. You may cause some stress for your children, and you may have one just like you. Or we tend to marry opposites, so you may have one that's not at all like you, and you don't quite know what to do with that. So that personality may take over a little too quickly quickly, have a little bit hard time letting the child make his own mistakes. What if you are a very conflict avoidance personality? How does that affect your parenting? Yeah, yeah. The temptation to be indulgent is really great. I don't want to this is a real oversimplification, but my experience is some of the most strong-willed children have a conflict avoidance mother because mother doesn't want to deal with it, and so that strong will has kind of, that's a huge oversimplification, okay? But that that kind of um, strong will has been accentuated because mom just, she wasn't like that. She never pushed the boundaries. It never dawned on her to do the things that this child is doing and she doesn't quite know what to do with it. Um, what if some, how, what's the person who feels guilty about everything? How does that affect your parenting style? Oh, you're inconsistent and you have a really hard time being um, I think you tend to be more indulgent because you don't want to hurt their feelings and, and so you, 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 and I at times are many of these. Um, what if you're lonely? 
Yeah, yeah. I want that kid to love me. And so it's going to be really hard for me to do anything that might do what I think is going to jeopardize love. And I hate to tell you, your children in sweet moments will tell you that they love you. But they will never, ever thank you for making them brush their teeth or make up their bed or get their homework or eat broccoli. I mean, you're going to have to wait till they're 30. Um, and it, it's very satisfying that I cannot tell you <laughs> the pleasure that I have had of seeing my children impose on their children some of the things that they most strenuously objected to. <laughs> we have a family, collective family memory of Amy, oh, just furious about a trip to the zoo in St. Louis, and granted, it was cold and it was rainy, but it was our one day to be there and see the zoo. We were traveling, and Shrigley's are not going to miss opportunities, so we were going to that zoo, and she complained and complained, and several years ago, she took her own children to that zoo, to which her brother replied, I cannot imagine that she ever set foot on that zoo again. <laughs> okay. Um... What about your own childhood do you want to be sure your child avoids or experiences? On the positive things, things that I wanted my children, because I had loved them, that I wanted them to experience, some of them they loved, and some of them they didn't, they could have cared less about. Where this is dangerous is what we kind of talked about before, when your parents parented in a way that you didn't like, that you didn't think was best, I'm not just saying didn't like, but if your dad was way too arbitrary, the tendency to overcorrect is great. So just think about it. Just be aware. Okay. okay. At the end of class last week, we did a rather silly little activity with mirror writing. My purpose in doing mirror writing was to help you remember how easy it is to think something is simple when it may not be as simple as it appears. And so in the mirror writing, we were tracing something which is very easy to do, but when you're looking in the mirror, all of your brain instincts are backwards. And it's, I'm telling you this because we're, we're going to begin talking about training. There are seats if you want to sit down, it's fine. Um, we're, we're fixing to talk about training and if you went to um, Run, Runkin, Runkill's thing last Sunday, which I thought was really interesting, I agreed with a whole lot of it, didn't agree with all of it. We'll talk about some of that as we go along. I thought he oversimplified a lot of things, but I think his point of the parent being in control and not feeding emotion is, is very well said. Um, but, but the part of, of sticking to it, of being authoritative, We've got to be sure that we're asking the right things of our children. So if we ask them to do something that we think is very easy, but it really isn't very easy, then we've asked them to do something really hard. And lo and behold, we're threatening all kinds of bad consequences if they don't do it, okay? The other side of that, which what we did last week doesn't illustrate very well, but I will promise you if we had practiced on drawing that little star with the mirror, if we had practiced for a couple of weeks, you would have been great at it. So if you don't ask your child to stretch and do some things that they're capable of doing, then they'll never learn to do it. Um, my husband would 
had little to say about styles of parenting, but I have a vivid memory of, I don't know what he was talking to the children about, and they were young, they were four, maybe four and two, and I don't know, he was talking about something, maybe it was chlorophyll or constellations, or I don't remember what it was, but anyway, I said, Fletcher, they have no idea what you're talking about, to which he replied, they will never have any idea if I don't talk to them about it. That's right. That's right. So our grandchildren learn epididymis very quickly in life. <laughs> okay. Um, so let's talk about training. Okay, the next 10 minutes are going to seem a whole lot like a child development psychology class you had in, in um, uh, college. I won't belabor this very long. Oh, let me go back. Effectiveness of your parent decisions is directly related to the confidence that you have in your decisions. The older your children get, the more they will cause you to second guess. Your children are smart. And if they sense some weakness in some rule that they don't like, they are going to go for it. And they're going to, you know, you know, the typical as they get older, I'm the only child that has to do this. Or you're ruining my life. That's more adolescent drama, but the same kind of thing is going to happen with young children. I can't believe you're not going to let me do it. Everybody gets to do this. Um, I was enormously blessed that my son's best friend's mother was every bit as strict as I was, maybe even a tad stricter. And when Douglas would get very put out at me, I would say, hmm. Well, who do you think you'd like to go live with? You want to go live with Miss Bennett? No, he didn't think he wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> um, Douglas, my youngest one, was very prone to strep throat. And I remember when he was uh, approaching two, he had strep throat. And he, didn't, he, he decided he was, maybe he wasn't two. Surely he wasn't two doing this. Um, he decided he was not going to take the um, antibiotic. Well, that was fine, and we got the prescription, I think, on a Saturday morning, and so I held him in a bear hug, or maybe my husband held him, and I took one hand to pry his mouth open and the other hand to pour it in. But lo and behold, Fletcher went to work Monday morning, and I had no way to hold him and have two arms left to administer the medicine. Now, I'm not proud of this, but I was determined. I, I had a good friend who had rheumatic fever as a result of untreated strep throat. I wasn't going to take that chance. I sat on him. I really did. I didn't put all my weight, but I put my knees on his shoulders to hold him down so that I had to, because I was absolutely sure that was the right thing, okay? Now, I don't want you to be confident to the point of arrogance, but I want you to have a peace with your parenting decision. So think about what you're going to ask and what you're going to do, and then don't let the child second guess you, okay? This is where the beauty of two parents is wonderful. Single parenting is hard for this very reason. You don't have anybody to bounce it off of, okay? I have a good friend who called me one afternoon. Her teenage son had just been totally disrespectful, and she told him he was going to miss the, the high school football game that night. And he just made her think he had truly ruined his life. And I said, no, it is an appropriate consequence what you've done. This is not the first time you've warned him. It's time to be accountable. But that feels so lonely when you're by yourself. Okay. 
Okay, with training in this instruction, you're going to have to determine what is age and child appropriate. And frankly, what is appropriate for one child at three may not be appropriate for your second child at three. What is appropriate for your child at three at nine o'clock in the morning may not be appropriate for your child at nine o'clock at night. Okay? What is age and child appropriate? Break down the desired behavior into the smallest increments possible, and then we're going to begin to try. Now, the big deal about age appropriate, you can't teach what a child can't do. Okay? I am very grateful for Children's Church and Church Nurseries. We had our first baby in Florida. She was the first baby that had been born in that congregation in five or six years. There wasn't another one. There was, there was a nursery facility, but there was no church nursery. And she was a fairly easy baby. I learned really quickly that I could feed her Cheerios for a very long period of time. <laughs> but most children can't sit for any length of time when they're 18 months old. And that is an unrealistic expectation. Now, the fact that one, I, I could get her to do that. I could bring enough books and I could bring enough Cheerios and even raisins. Raisins took longer because they stuck together. Um, I could bring enough to keep her through a whole hour. But that's not fair to the next baby that's born in that church that they think the next baby should be able to do that because I could not have done that with one of my children. They couldn't do it, okay? So we gotta be age appropriate, okay? Um, but you can surely frustrate yourself and discourage your child if you are determined anyway. So I will tell you, if you're asking, if you're training for a behavior and you're doing all the things right and it's not happening, that's a little bit of a red flag to think, mm, have, I, have I misjudged something that they really can't do? Okay. The physical, emotional, social, attentional, that's a big one. And intellectual maturity necessary for a particular task varies greatly. Um, your children are likely to be very bright because you are very bright, okay? And it's very easy to take that intellectual maturity and think that they can do all sorts of things that they can't do because they don't have the attention span to do it, okay? So don't be... Don't be misled by what they can do intellectually, okay? Um, and I've already made reference, fatigue, level of blood sugar, stress, everything else makes a difference too. Okay, this is from your college class. There are lots of different models to look at how children mature. And I don't really, I'm not going to spend my time explaining them all to you. If you want more information, I can give it to you. You can get it online. Um, Maslow's is a whole long time ago. It's very old, but it's a very valid concept that we have different levels of needs. And children start right here. That baby wants to be warm. He wants to be full. He wants to be clean. Nothing else matters, okay? Ron, I will email these to you if you want me to, and you won't have to take them. Okay. <laughs> As they get older, they're more concerned with safety, but they don't get here for a long time. Okay? They're going to get there, but they don't get here for a good while. Okay? So 
when we appeal to this level and they're not there, it's fine to have those conversations. I believe in that. In the same way that Fletcher says, if we don't talk about it, they're never going to get it. But don't expect them to be there earlier than they are. And again, it varies greatly from, from child to child. Okay, Erickson has an extensive um, description of various stages. The first one is just trust or mistrust. The child wants to know that his needs are going to be met. If, he, if he's getting reasonable care and somebody to feed him and somebody to take care of him, and it says that he will trust that the world is a good place and he will have hope. The second stage, and it comes to be about two, this is triggering the terrible twos, is he wants to do it himself. He wants to be separate, and this is healthy. You want this to happen. There's something wrong if it doesn't happen. It's just very trying at times. And then as they get to be four to six, they are... Um, they're wanting to take the initiative, they're wanting to plan, they're wanting to um, feel good about themselves, and the opposite of this is guilt. And we'll talk a good bit more about guilt and shame at a later time. Uh, and then he goes on even to talk about confidence. I have very strong feelings about that one. I think as our children get older, helping them to develop confidence is a huge gift. I think there are very few things that make a child feel better about himself than their ability to handle something. And whether it's getting their book bag and getting to school, or whether it's learning to read, or whatever those things are, competencies, I think, are extremely meaningful for children. And then they're all, okay, this is my favorite one, and Piaget goes back many, 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 many decades. Um, but I think this one's particularly interesting. He lists several different stages, sensory motor, again, where the child is really learning how to negotiate his world. But particularly, I think the pre-operational stage and the operational stage um, are interesting. And bear with me just a little bit. Children, um, operational stages, ages two to seven, struggle to see anything except from their own vantage point. Now, some of you are not going to believe me, but I promise you it's true. In fact, I meant to look. We even have a, pic, um, a little video that Amy did for one of her classes of one of her children. Okay, your two-year-old will know that this is a cat and this is a sheep, okay? But if I take your two-year-old and I say, what are you seeing? What's a sheep? What am I seeing? I'm seeing a sheep too. <clears throat> oh, but now there's a cat on the other side. So what are you seeing now? You're seeing a cat. What am I seeing? I'm seeing a cat. And you can talk all day long. <laughs> and he thinks, so when you talk about don't hurt your brother because you wouldn't want him to hurt you, you're doing what Fletcher says. He's never going to get it if you don't talk about it, but he doesn't get it yet. So don't be surprised when he doesn't get it yet. Yes, talk about it. That's what the authoritative parent does. He gives explanations. He gives understanding. But don't think this kid is bad or even slow because he can't see things 
in another way. Let me give you another one that I think is fascinating. I think I've even got a slide on this one. Yes. If you take two um, identical jars <coughs> of water, you fill them the same height, and you say to the child, are these the same? You can even ask them if they want to pour them back and forth until they think they've got them exactly the same, okay? Some of you know this, you remember it from your psychology. Then you take a nice skinny jar and you pour one of those in the nice skinny jar so it comes up further on the skinny jar. And you say, are they the same? Yet? No. <laughs> this one has more or that one has more. They'll, they'll add. But they, they don't have that concrete understanding that the property doesn't change because the shape, the amount doesn't change because the shape. You think, why in the world in the Sunday school class are we talking about this? I'm talking about this because this is developmental. And what you're going to ask of your child needs to be respectful of his developmental pattern. And if you're not aware that there are lots of little intricacies to this developmental pattern, it's easy to ask your child to do something that they can't do. Back 47 years ago when I had my first child, there was a real trend to very early potty training. People were trying to potty train their children at 12 months of age. Mm -hmm. And I remember a very wise psychologist friend of mine saying, kind of giggling and saying, it isn't a kid that's being potty trained, it's mama. Mm -hmm. And the idea was the child is not developmentally ready at 12 months. But if mama's there watching every tiny little grimace or flicker of the eye, then maybe she can catch every time. Mama's trained, not child, okay? Does that make sense? Okay? <laughs> okay. How to train and teach? Model, model, model. Okay? And it is fascinating to me what my children saw that I had no idea they were aware of. Let me give you a for instance that happened fairly recently. I was talking to my son and we were talking about some family friends that just, uh, they just get there on different places politically and they just can't talk about any of it. They just get so mad and stirred up and I said, you know, I, we've never really had that trouble and he burst out laughing. He said, mother, you and dad never voted for the same candidate in any election. And I thought, well, that's kind of true. Do you see what I'm saying? I never thought about teaching that we're not going to get mad over politics. I'm sure those words never entered my vocabulary for him. But he saw that neither one of us were passionate about politics enough that we were going to let that be a divided <coughs> issue. You can say that's good or bad. I'm, I'm not going to get into politics. <laughs> <laughs> Teach, train, direct, lead, direct. <coughs> Reinforce positive behavior. Repeat as needed, and it will be needed. <laughs> I love this one. That child holding the newspaper upside down was a freshman in college this year. That was an unposed picture. I'm not sure you can tell, but his daddy's also reading the newspaper. Daddy's read the newspaper. Children, he's two there read the newspaper even if they read it upside down because that's what daddies do and that's what he wanted to be like his daddy. 
This is another unposed. That's Chris Welch, and Will is a senior in high school. All right, I want to talk a little bit about behaviorism. Now, this is offensive to somebody because this is basically related to Pavlov's dogs, and nobody wants to think their child is just some dog that can be programmed, and I certainly do not think children are dogs that can be programmed. I do think that there is a lot from operant conditioning, which is another term for a particular kind of behaviorism, that has great benefit for parents, okay? So we're going to look at that just a little bit. The frequency of a behavior can be increased or decreased by the stimulus that follows that behavior. I'm old. If I eat at 10 o'clock, I don't sleep very well. I have a negative stimulus to eating late at night. So you know what? Despite the fact that I love to eat late, I don't do that. The negative has changed my behavior, okay? And this is really, I assure you, a very, very powerful concept, okay? A positive stimulus, a reinforcer, increases the likelihood that the behavior will be repeated. A negative stimulus decreases. So if you want something to happen more often, you want to have a positive reinforcer. If you want it to happen less often, you have a negative reinforcer. Okay, before we go to the children, let's talk about some adult reinforcers. What are reinforcers for adults? What are reinforcers for you? Not having indigestions are reinforcers. A negative reinforcer <laughs> for me. Not very pretty. Maybe more information than you wanted. What are what are reinforcers for adults? Yes. Paycheck means I keep going. To yes, work. sir. There are not a lot of people that'll go to work if that paycheck doesn't come in. So money's a reinforcer. What else is a reinforcer? Yes, someone saying they love you. Yes, love, affection, sex. A happy spouse. Yes, yes. Making someone, somebody, th there's an affirmation in that. What else is reinforcers? A traffic ticket is a negative reinforcer. Being written up for doing something incorrect at work is a negative reinforcer. What else is a positive reinforcer? If I bake and the pie turns out well, that's a positive reinforcer. And it's a really positive reinforcer if people that I love like it. I think Fletcher's mother had prepared him that I might not be able to cook at all. And bless his heart. <laughs> He bragged on toast if it wasn't burnt. <laughs> now, he does like to eat, but I love to cook, and I think it is completely tied. My mother did not like to cook. I think my loving to cook is very much tied to I got lots of positive reinforcement from cooking. Okay? Now, what are reinforcers for children? Let's talk about positive ones first. What are positive reinforcers for children? Praise. Praise. Dessert. Dessert. <laughs> We're on the same page. What else? 
Goldfish. Goldfish. <laughs> M&M's. Stickers. What else? Spending time with mommy. Screen time. When they get a little older, that phone is a powerful. There's a part of me that thinks at some point it's worth giving them a phone just so that you can you can have it if you need to take it away. <laughs> I'm not really sure I'm proud that I've said that, but I think it's reality. I, I think it's reality. Um, okay, what are negative reinforcers for children? Grounding, timeout, spanking, loss of privilege. Chores. Okay, that that's a mixed blessing, and I use some chores. My children. We live in a had, had a big yard with lots of trees, and so there were always sticks that fell out. Before you could cut the grass, you had to go pick up all the sticks, and so they just knew to watch out when we'd had a big windstorm because there were lots of sticks out there, and that was going to be the consequence. And I thought they will never ever want to do yard work because that was the consequence at our house. Well, a frequent consequence as they got there, they had to pick up sticks. And as you might expect, we had to define the sticks because one child was picking up 10 sticks and breaking them in three pieces and he had 30 really quickly. So if you got caught breaking us, Drew, can you guess which one that was? <laughs> Drew knows my son. Uh, we had to define that if you broke a stick, that one didn't count and you had to start over. And then they had to be a certain size stick. They had, you know, you couldn't pick up these little teeny things that didn't matter if a lawnmower cut them. So um, that's all kind of part of the process. Okay. <laughs> If you are trying to establish a new behavior with a positive reinforcer, you want to reinforce it every time. So when you're potty training, you give them an M&M &M every time they are successful until you get the behavior well established, okay? Okay? Once the behavior is established, it is more likely to be maintained longer if the reinforcement is intermittent. In other words, if you're reinforcing every single time and then you don't reinforce for three times, the child thinks, oh, Ruth will change. I don't have to do that anymore. Okay? And some of you are thinking, but wait a minute, I'm not going to give my child M&Ms for going to the potty when he's going to school. So there is a bigger picture to this. This is a useful tool for training. We don't want to be here the rest of our lives, okay? We want them to come to see the significance of the behavior, the value of the behavior. We'll talk about that. Rachel. Um, so specifically about potty training, having multiple. And then you end up having to give eminence to everybody. Like, like, it feels like, I wish there was a way we could explain it, you know. And I've tried to explain all this. Is something we're doing? There, there is. And you can decide that it's easier to give M&Ms for everybody. And so when little brother goes, everybody rejoices. Or, <laughs> and that's not bad because that also gives them, I mean, he gets lots of reinforcement for that. It's also okay to say, this is for him. You got this at this stage. Now he's a little boy. And it is time for me to let you go. If you didn't get an email and you want to be on the email list, if you'll come give me your email address and I'll see you next week.